Hey, hey, it's Laura. Welcome. So because we're human, at some point we're all going to feel deeply alone, cut off from other people. And for some of us, it passes quickly. But for others, especially those who suffer from addiction, that feeling of isolation is pretty persistent. It's like this low hum that just follows us everywhere. And part of the reason why some of us drink or use drugs or whatever is to numb that feeling, to turn down the voices that tell us all the reasons why we are alone. Chris Marshall knows those feelings very well, and he's here today to share how listening to them almost killed him on several occasions and how he's developed a support network to make them less loud. Chris learned how powerful the experience of connection can be, and it literally helped save his life. It also led him to create Sandsbar, a community connection space that specializes in serving up amazing zero-proof cocktails and helping folks, sober folks, have an experience. You may know Chris if you're a member of the Luckiest Club, the sobriety support community I founded in 2020. He's one of the meeting leaders. And I asked him to come on and talk uh, about all of this. We also recorded some material just for TMSD Plus members. So if you want to hear some of his top tips and secrets for creating inclusive spaces, that's there. And he also shares his favorite drink for the hottest summer day and also his two word, just two words, genius answer to those questions do you want to drink and why aren't you drinking? So remember, paid TMST members are the engine behind this project. The membership helps us pay for the cost of making the show and keeping it coming your way. You can find the link in show notes or head over to tmstpod.com. Five, 10, 20 bucks a month makes a massive difference. And with every episode, we post a Spotify playlist just because it's fun and it deepens the experience. So check it out. All right, here's Chris. Hey, hey, my friends. Good to have you. I figured we'd kick off by reading something you actually posted on Instagram just this morning. You you write these beautiful prose slash poem pieces, um... But this is what it says. For as long as I can remember, I've always been the only one. The one who didn't fit in. The one who didn't belong. So there's something specific about this. Because it's not just that you don't belong or fit in. It's also that you're the only one who doesn't fit in or belong. And... What are your what are your earliest memories of that? Uh, <laughs> the nursery when I was a baby. <laughs> like I remember vaguely, you know, uh, being a baby and feeling like I didn't belong or that no one wanted me. Like from my earliest memories, I've always felt like um, I was different or I had done something wrong or mm-hmm. yeah, just like I wasn't the, the one the one you wanted to pick. Like mm-hmm. I was just born that way. And uh, the older I got, I started gathering all this evidence to affirm that, that this was true, that I was um, the person that would get picked, picked last. Like yeah. that was just my lot in life. Do you have any clues of where you first absorbed that message? Well, I know there's one particular instance in my life, right? Like there's a, there's, you know, a very clear line in the sand where I was a kid, you know, without, you know, any blemishes on my like record. And then, you know, I, I, I injure, or I perceive that I injure like my dad. I, um, I was a kid, I was five years old and um, my dad had mental health problems emerge. And around the same time, I broke his fish tank. And when that happened, it was, there were two instances that were totally unrelated. But in my five-year-old mind, I made them related. In fact, I made uh, the breaking of my father's mental 
state the fish tank and that I had done this and that I was responsible. And that's the first time I ever bore that responsibility of like hurting someone else. Mm-hmm. And as hard as the adults in my life worked to disprove that for me and tell me that that wasn't true, it was too late. I had already made that connection. I'd already determined that I was guilty and I was going to sentence myself to a life of disconnection, a life of being away mm-hmm. from people because I, I hurt people. I break people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I was thinking at five and six years old. It literally started that early. And then I just kept following the wrong breadcrumbs, right? Following the, all the well, evidence of my yeah, life. That's what that was we saying, do though. You know, yeah. we, we, we find the evidence to prove what we believe. Mm-hmm. unconsciously too. It's not like you're sitting there <laughs> parsing through things. It feels very true. Absolutely. I mean, it felt in every, every bit of evidence that I found seemed real. It seemed as though it was pointing to this truth that I was a bad kid, that I was a kid who not only caused my dad to get sick, but then my parents to divorce and, you know, just feeling responsible for divorce. When did that happen? Um, like a, a year after he got sick. Okay. Um, he, his decline was rapid. And for most of my childhood, I believed that, um, that my, that my mother left my father that, that you know, when he, when he was the, the sickest, she just decided to, to leave him. Um, and that's a truth that I held on to for the longest time until someone told me otherwise, like no one, I didn't stop to ask. I just assumed that, um, when you get sick, People abandon you. People leave you. Well, that's another brutal message, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can't be broken or you're going to get left. Mm-hmm. And no one will want you. And again, because I'm my father's son, like I'm like, okay, no one will want me. How were you as a kid? Like, how did you try to compensate for that? How did you care? How did you learn to carry that? I don't think I was consciously carrying around this burden, this responsibility. Um, but I definitely know that it was there in the background. I moved through the world kind of at a distance from everyone else and really pushing people away. Um, it was this weird self, you know, imposed prison where like I would want to have friends and want to like make friends as a kid. But then the second someone got close to me, I would push them away. And I can almost recall that feeling. It was this like, you're getting too close. You're getting too close and you're going to get hurt. Not I'm going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. That's so interesting. The you're going to get hurt. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. Is that what you thought? Yeah. I broke the strongest man I knew. My dad was an amateur boxer, and um, what we believe now is that he probably had some TBI stuff um, along with schizophrenia. Um, but we believe that the TBI stuff and the um, head trauma stuff was something that we just didn't understand back then. No. Right? But he was a boxer, so he had a boxer's body. This, this was not a small man. It was not a weak man. Um my first memory, my first real memory is running down um, the, the street that we lived on, on his shoulders. He used to jog and use me as a weight. Wow. Like this was not a small man. Um, and I broke him. I didn't realize or, or learn till later that he had divorced my mom because he was afraid that he was going to hurt us. And he didn't want his children to grow up witnessing his demise when did you find that out oh like 16 when it was wow like, yeah too late i was already like I'd already made the, yeah i was like too late it's uh, i wish i would have learned this earlier thank you um but yeah for the longest time i i i blamed my mom and i didn't realize that she had begged him like let's work this out let's please, I don't, I don't want this for you. I want to help you and connect with you. Like this is 
this is what this is what we're what what marriage means. It means to move through the hard things together. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, "No, I don't want that. I really want my kids to, to have a life where this is not their story." Wow. I won't be there, but I also won't be there to like harm them. And uh, it only speaks to the kind of man that he was, both before he got sick and when he got sick. At some point, drugs and alcohol enter the picture. When was that and what was going on and how did it happen? You know, the first like introduction of alcohol into my like life and understanding what alcohol was, was very early on. My, my father's father uh, was an alcoholic um, or abused alcohol. And I was keenly aware that that was a poison and I did not want to, to consume that. I, I knew that very early on. I made a pact with myself at maybe 10 or 11, like, you know, before you become a teenager, that I was never going to consume alcohol until I was 21. Mm. That was just, that was it. I get to high school and realize that alcohol is a currency. That's how you connect with people. Um, That's how you know who's cool. Like alcohol was a currency in high school. And if you wanted to have connections, because again, I, as much as I was getting into troubles and in school suspension, um, suspended, like I was doing all, all the you know behaviors, I still wanted friends. Yeah. Um, and so there was, there was a real decision I had to make. It was like, okay, you can either keep this promise to yourself and not consume alcohol until you're an adult, um, or 18. Um, or you can use this social currency to make those connections. And I didn't take that decision lightly. Um, I knew exactly what alcohol was, but the, the, the opportunity for connection was worth the risk, Mm -hmm. the chance to be with friends and have friends and share drinks with friends and go on, uh, the golf course that I worked on on Mondays and drink with my friends. It was just, it was too great to pass up. Yeah. Uh, and so I had my first drink at 16. And was it kind of, you were off? Was Did that light go on that they talk about? It was like Vegas lighting up. It wow. was It was this all at once, like blinding, searing light. And I, I, I had everything, that feeling of everything I had ever wanted, including absolution, uh, in that first drink, immediately I felt forgiven for breaking my father. I wow. felt connected to these boys that I was with. I was with a group of boys, and I felt connected to boys, which I had always struggled with being a you know the only ma- uh, boy in my house and um, being surrounded by <laughs> by women my whole life. Like yeah. I was, I was in with the guys. I was forgiven of my sins. I was cleansed and made a new person. It was a baptism in every sense of the word. This is so crazy because what you just described sounds like what a lot of people experience in, you know, doing psychedelics or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like not all drug experiences are bad experiences. Like this probably was, did you an incredible favor? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it removed, you know, at that time, a decade and some change worth of like, shame and guilt about hurting my, my father and breaking up my family. And, um, for, for that, for that first drink, it just, something happened. It just all went away Mm -hmm. and it, and, and it didn't go away. It just, it was on pause. Sure. Well, that's enough. I I mean, when you don't have that pause ever, you've never had a pause. It's like, that feels like a miracle. It was, it was weightlessness. Mm -hmm. It was weightlessness. And so, Quickly after that first drink and that feeling of weightlessness, gravity returns. And I felt just as heavy as I did before. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. So you have to keep drinking to like <laughs> feel weightless. Okay. Um, simple enough. So it didn't take much. You know, I think the, the second time I ever drank, I got my first DUI. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know you went. I knew you like went down fast, but I didn't know it was the second time you drank. Oh no, 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 no! I went down so fast, and I mean, that's why people, you know, like you got sober so young. Like, how did that happen? Like, because I literally was on this accelerated program, right? Like, like I was blazing through. Um, There was not going to be a a long protracted. You know, this was. It was your only tool. (laughs) And when you put that much weight in it, like you're going to go, you're going to pour yourself into that container, right? Yeah. There there was no protracted long, decades long war against alcohol. It was nuclear. Mm -hmm. It was, it was over before it really got a chance to, to start. So uh, second time I drank, I got a DUI, flipped my mom's car, totaled it ran through an intersection, ran through someone's backyard, almost like Ugh. hit two kids while they were sleeping in their house. I went to jail for the first time at 16. Yeah. I mean, so the feeling of weightlessness uh, came with now a criminal record, but it yeah. was still worth it to me. Like it was always worth it to me mm-hmm. because it was like, all I had to do was just drink again. And I would feel that weightlessness. And the weird thing about, my high school years, I was, I became a heavy alcohol user again, immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember getting out of jail and waiting for my mom to, you know, come home and find out that we didn't have a car and drinking immediately, right? Drinking whatever beer was left in the fridge. Yeah. So I had this very serious alcohol uh, dependence issue going on, but at the same time, I was the editor of my newspaper as a sophomore. I lettered in newspaper and journalism. Uh, I did won some competitions. I was drinking in the dark room of my high school and, you know, banging out, you know, an editorial. And my journalism teacher finally caught up to me and realized that I was drinking to get my my work done Mm. at school. And, uh, so grateful for her. Um, she just said that this was not me. Like this, is, this isn't you. Mm. Like you, you don't need to do this. Like you're a good writer. You're, you're worthy of friendship. You're worthy of being loved and accepted for who you are. And you don't have to drink wow. to have those things. Um, I just didn't believe her. I didn't believe anyone. I didn't believe anyone when they said that they loved me or that they cared about me. There was just too much evidence to the contrary. There was too much evidence that I was a monster, that I was um, that I was going to become the, the kind of monster that men who are sick become. And I, and I wanted to do good in the world. Like that never changed. The only thing that changed was the way I found connection was through alcohol. Right. And alcohol for me was the great equalizer. I was middle, middle class in a suburb, suburb of Houston where everyone was upper middle class to lower upper class. Like everyone was affluent. And mm-hmm. I felt different for that reason. I felt different because my father had schizophrenia. I felt different because I was the only black child in most of my social and educational experiences. Mm-hmm. I felt different for all these reasons. And when I drank, I felt equal. Right. Alcohol Enough alcohol will knock everyone out, right? And that's the that to me was just so empowering in some weird way. Like I felt like we were all equal when we were drunk. Because I was showing up to school drunk, because I was, you know, getting other kids drunk at school, I did not technically graduate high school. I had to finish in summer school because mm-hmm. I just wasn't passing my classes. They let me walk. But that was again another point of shame. I knew totally. I didn't belong there. Like I knew they were only letting me go through because of who I, because of my, my, my ability to finesse and like my ability to like, you know, be charming. But I knew that like, I didn't belong there. Oh, that's such a, God, it hurts me to hear you say that, but I get it. Like, yeah, it's just more proof. More proof you don't belong. So what happened? What got you to finally say, I got to get sober. I get sober at 23. Okay. And you got, is, is it because you got another DUI? Like what, what happened? 
I got another DUI, um, and that one was just like sad. Again, sad because I was wasn't partying. I was literally driving my friend's car through campus, and I and I knew better. Like mm-hmm. the officer that stopped me was a campus officer, and he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "You know what? I have no. Bi- this isn't even necessary." I was very honest, and I was like, "Just take me to jail. I've been. I've done this before." Um, it was so. It was so sad, and. Um, you know, I was I was fortunate to like um, be able to to in in Texas a DUI is not the same as the DWI, so mm-hmm. DWI is kind of what DUIs are nationally. So yeah. I was kind of fortunate; I was still under twenty one. So it's it's a misdemeanor; it's not you know not not as serious of a crime. Uh, so I was able to move on with my life, but I was on probation, and I was drinking on probation. I was mm-hmm. showing up to this this person's office in downtown San Antonio drunk. Mm. for an alcohol offense like it was clear that i needed help and so yeah where'd you find it like what was your entree into recovery uh the first go around was a treatment center that was kind of middle of the road and uh checked myself out didn't belong there i looked at everyone they were much older than i was and it just made no sense for a 23 year old kid to be in rehab it was dumb it was like who goes to rehab at 23 so I signed myself out of treatment and I decided that I'm going to stay sober for the next 30 days. And so I ended up staying sober for nine for 90 days. And it was on pure like spite. I was like going to prove to people that I didn't have a problem, that I, that I could stop when I wanted to. And then day like 99, I decided to drink again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, again, very, very rapid descent. I just, you know, smashed into the earth and just drank way too much. Went to treatment again at 23 and that was a mental health hospital. And that was the first time people really talked to me about my anxiety and my depression. Ah, okay. What was it like getting sober at 23? I mean, were you re- were you relieved in some sense? Were you like, uh, now my life is really over? Now I really don't belong? Like, what was going on in you? The only reason I stopped at 23 um, was because I met a group of people who were alumni of the treatment program that I was in, the hospital. And they would come back and they would talk to us and there was this one guy his name was chris and he i don't know why but he asked me the the strangest question he said do you do you feel a part of and i said that's an incomplete thought do i feel a part of what he says do you feel a part of anything man do you feel a part of life do you feel a part of your family do you feel a part of any group of anything and it just was the it was the right question to the right kid at the right time like my whole life, I had never felt like I belonged. And here was someone saying, you know, you know, looking almost like, a, you know, a God or something like, you know, like this, this person coming to me and saying this thing to me in this and with such confidence, like, do you, do you feel a part of it struck me, it struck mm-hmm. me hard. And I had to be honest, like I never felt a part of anything. And he said, you know what, if you stay sober you get to belong to us we're wow. your new friends we're your new we're your new family this is where you belong and you never have to drink again if you don't want to and um, between that and then realizing that i was around these older people in treatment and that that was the first time i was exposed to other people who had the kind of alcohol uh, problem that i had yeah and to realize that you could be, you know, I was 23, but you could be 43, 53, 63, and still dealing with the same thing. Like that, that was a huge sign for me to stop. Cause I was like, oh, so you don't always die right away. I had already. <laughs> yeah, you don't die. Like there's no guarantee I'm going to die in like two years. Right. Like, <laughs> I I, my thought was we do this for another two years. I'm out by 25, you know, you know, uh-huh. tears, mourning. And I, you know, right off into the sunset and no, you get to live this way. And it was the first time anyone had ever shown me that. And I was like, oh, we don't die right. 
you can do this for decades. No, no. And I just like that right there. And I told no one that. But between hearing that there was an opportunity to be connected to people, to live weightless, mm-hmm. and to realize that I could continue suffering this way for what would feel like an eternity. I was like, no, 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 no. I actually want to stop drinking. I don't want to live this way for the next 30 years. Um, and that, that was it. That was the, the two things that happened to me that changed my life. I've never heard you say that before. That's, that's powerful. Okay. So now, now we're sober, but you still got your, your insides, right? How does, what happens when you get sober? What is, what, what gets better? What gets worse? What, what happens? Well, the one thing that, that got better right away was this awareness that I had always had this undercurrent of anxiety Mm -hmm. that had always been there. And you didn't have a name for that. You didn't know that. No, not at all. Like I, I had no clue that it was anxiety, that this, this, this wet blanket that had always been on me since, again, I came out of the womb. I never knew that that was anxiety. I always just, it's kind of like living with, you know, you know, your whole life, you know, you, you live with, you know, your hair and then you suddenly lose your hair. Like it's, it was like that. It was like, this is just always the way it's been. Like, what would it be to not have that? I, and so the idea that I could live without it was, was liberating and terrifying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just, just being introduced to the idea that, hey, what you're feeling, this, this, this always activated feeling, this, this sense of consistent and persistent need to leave and flee, like that's anxiety talking. That, that is not an indictment on you as a person. It's saying like the trauma that you've endured has resulted in this kind of way of looking at the world. And you see, the, you see everything as a threat, but you also see yourself as a threat because you're afraid of the world and the anxiety colors your world and makes you believe that this is the only way to live yeah. is to be afraid of everything. Did you get, like, did you do medication on top of therapy and treatment and stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I had all these misconceptions about medication. I, you know, I was so worried that if I took medication, it would make me a zombie or it would, you know, I was very fortunate to, like, have a good experience. I know a lot of people don't, um, but I was very fortunate to just stay with it until I found something that did work for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I realized that I, I like, I remember the first day I didn't, I didn't wake up just terrified. It was, it was so quiet. It's like when you walk outside of your house with, after a snow, mm-hmm. like the way that the sound is just mm-hmm. evaporated from the world. Like it was that kind of muted bliss. Yeah. I so get it as someone with anxiety who also didn't know. It's, yeah, it's, it makes me want to cry thinking about it because it's like living with a, <clears throat> your heart beating like a rabbit all the time and, it's, and, and just like how uncomfortable that, that pressure feels. Mm-hmm. You don't know that you could have a different heartbeat, a, a calmer more peaceful inner life. You just don't even know that that is available to anyone. Well, certainly not to you. It's, yeah. Yeah. So now, did you, did you kind of, you're, is this when you started to work towards working in recovery? Yeah. So pretty quickly, um, it wasn't, you know, right away, but I got sober at 23. I had been working at Subway for like the last six years. I had, I had no like career prospects again, thinking I'm going to be dead in two years. Why build a career? 
Right. Like, what's the <laughs> point? Like, I, I really had that. That was my exit plan. And so I, I really didn't know what to do now that I was going to live. And now that I wanted to live, what to do? So I went back to school, took an aptitude test. They were like, hmm, counselor. And I'm like, okay. And, and I, I never thought about it before, but I loved stories. I had, that never changed. My ability to, to just get in, wrapped inside of a story and to, to really hear um, someone else's life. Like that was what I loved about journalism. That's what drew me to the profession. Right. And so um, I was like, this is just hearing people's stories in a different way and clarifying like plot points. That's all it is. Um, and so I, I tried it out. I loved it. Uh, you know, went back to school, became a licensed counselor. And then I'm doing that for, you know, six to eight years, eight years total. And um, it was fantastic. It was to be a wounded healer and to be able to take um, the scars that you've accrued over time and they become helpful to someone else is just an incredible experience. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. And we think that the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so that all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMST Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the show's production and distribution costs. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift for as little as $5 or $10 or $20 a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist that we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and we're thrilled that you're here. And if you could become a member, well, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. Takes less than two minutes. And thanks. We've talked about times in your sobriety when you have felt the same disconnection when you have even had suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety. So can you talk about what it's like to go through that in recovery? What gets you there and, and what brings you back? What has brought you back? Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad we're talking about this too, because I feel like so much of podcasts and literature out there, it really focuses on what it was like. Focus mm -hmm. on like, oh, the this disastrous past and how how hard it was and now look how beautiful life is. And I have not had that experience. <laughs> yeah, well um, nobody has that's honest about recovery. You've been you've been sober for what now? Fifteen years. Yeah. I mean you're you've lived a whole life in recovery. Yeah, my whole adult life. Yeah. Right. So uh, yeah. So, uh, okay, go on. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, if I'm honest, like those thoughts of not being worthy of love and not being a part of creep in from time to time. And I think what gets me there to answer your question, what gets me there is um, those old friends of like, you know, insecurity and overwhelm anxiety gets me there. Um, and it's never just done in a day. It's, it's a slow, you know, the slow boil that kind of just continues to just slowly heat up over time. And then I, I realize that, you know, I'm on, I'm in it. I'm on fire. I am, <laughs> I am in the pot and it is boiling. It just, it just over time, I've been able to catch it faster, but yeah. most times it's just this 
sudden awareness that I've let these feelings of isolation, of insecurity, of not being worthy creep up and it's overwhelming. And, and now I'm like in a very bad situation. And uh, the situation has has turned dire, I'd say a handful of times in my recovery. And that's not something that I'm ashamed of um, because I know that part of the way that the that those elements have a chance to impact my life is when I am silent about it. Yeah. Right. That's the only way shame grows in my recovery journey is when I'm silent about it. And I feel like the longer I stay sober, and this is something that we've talked about too, is like the longer you stay sober, the harder it is to admit that you've had or acknowledge that you've had um, a setback or you've had a bad day or you've had a hard day. Yep. Um, and I, and I, and I, I find myself often, I mean, I'm, I'm talking in the present tense, like mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say that I'm having a bad day because I never want to um, <laughs> give this impression that like I'm doing poorly. Yeah. And the truth is, is that you're going to have a hard, you're going to have hard days. And, and I, and I continue to have hard days. I will say this though, even though I have hard days, they're still not as bad as they were initially. And they sure as heck are not as bad as they were when I was in my cups. Like they're not, they're not that bad, but right. yeah, there's, there's been some dark days for sure. Well, we have dark seasons, right? It's just life. And then you add the, the sort of background cocktail of your programming and it can just, how you described it as a slow boil is what has been my experience as well. It's, you don't know you're in it. If you knew, you would probably stop it, but it's very sneaky, right? It's just a little pullback here from this relationship, a little pullback from that, a thought that you don't question in a certain situation. And then, you know, of course, then there's life. You add on all the, um, the cultural stuff, the going through a pandemic for two years, you know, like I always hate the constant vigilance type of talk because it's so exhausting. But do you feel like you do have to have, it sounds so exhausting, but you do you feel like you have to have a healthy amount of vigilance more or less all the time? Yeah. I don't like that talk either. Um, it, to me, it feels a lot like anxiety. Like yeah, this hypervigilance, right? like, like that sounds familiar, you know, just, <laughs> just, just be worried all the time that something's going to happen. Not a big deal. Right. Um, I don't like that. What I've learned to do is to have the, uh, a small circle of folks in my life who, um, are my catchers in the rye, who know, um, where the, where the cliff is and they, they catch me before I get there, they, they, Hey, like you didn't reply to my text. Is everything okay? Mm-hmm. If everything's not okay, you let me know. Um, or like, Hey, you seem distant. You know, my wife's one of those, she just, she, she just catches it. She's, she's gotten better over time at just recognizing these things that I can't see in myself again. I don't realize the boil is happening. So, and I don't know if anyone is that self-aware. I think part of the, the challenge is that, you can't see it. That's the point. And that, that's the point, right? Like, like no one is that self-aware that they see themselves as the boil is happening, as this is happening, as, as this crescendo is happening. Like, you, it's hard to notice the difference. And so you need outside observers to tell you, hey, this is what's happening. And so I, I don't have a, a bunch of friends who are keenly aware of, like, what those signs and symptoms are. But I do have a small contingent. And I don't depend on one person to fulfill those needs either, because that's not fair, right? Bingo. Like well, it's also impossible. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a that's an important point. Uh, no, no one person, not your wife, not your, not one friend, can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, not even if they wanted to. Right. They and it's and it's honestly it's so insidious that it would just like present itself as normal to that one person. Mm-hmm. That's why I have all these like these people with different perspectives and different understandings of what 
what I am so that uh, yeah. it looks, you know, it hits people in a different way in a professional sense. Like, hey, Chris, like, you know, talking about your stuff for, for Sands Bar or whatever you're, you're building and um, you're kind of slipping, dude. Are you OK? You know, just those kind of things I have, you know, uh, my friends that I talk to and they're just like, you seem anxious. Are you OK? Uh -huh. Like uh -huh. all of those people. But I never depend on one person. I, and I just. If there's anything I can say that's helpful, it's like never make one person your everything for anything. Amen. So I want to kind of shift to something that you that you've said that I haven't forgotten is that you will you won't go into a rooms anymore where you are required to leave behind the heaviest thing about you. Can you just talk about that? Like talk about, cause I think as a, as a person in recovery with, a, with the identity you do, you don't see a lot of people like you. And you, what I've heard you say is you kind of still, even though you were finding community and sober and healing, there was still this part of you that you couldn't bring in mm -hmm. to the conversation. And it, it wasn't even that I couldn't bring in, I was asked to leave out, mm -hmm. right? Like, I did find that community at 23. I did find uh, a group of like 50 year old white guys that would take me out to eat bad Mexican food and drink coffee till 3 a.m. Like it was great. I had a great time. Um, I was by far the youngest and the only black person in the group. Mm -hmm. um, and that was connection that and that connection was everything that I was looking for and what I needed at the time. But there were there were so many moments when I wanted to carry along with me my blackness and everything that I had struggled with, with being a black man in America. And I was repeatedly asked to leave that out the door at the door. It was an outside issue. I was told, <laughs> I remember talking about how I applied for a job and I wasn't sure if I didn't get the job because I was not qualified or because I was black. Um, and some uh, bouffant haired you know, lady pulled me, pulled me aside after the meeting and said, honey, we don't talk about those things here. You, you don't talk about race and color here. And I was like, <laughs> but that's my recovery. Like this is like, this is, yeah. I was talking about, you know, turning it over and like, I related it back to the solution. And like, I did all, I spoke all the language. I like what, because I mentioned it, it may be because I'm black. I have to, I couldn't bring that in. It it was something that I was willing to accept until I wasn't. Right. And when did what you happened hit that point? Like the okay. death of George Floyd. Yeah. That was it. George Floyd died. I was like, nah, nah. Um, like I just been doing this for a decade plus and I'm just not willing to do it anymore. And especially mm -hmm. because when I would go into the rooms, which are virtual at that time because of the pandemic um, and there were some outside meetings here in Texas but every time that anyone of color would bring up anything related to feeling scared or feeling unheard or feeling upset, that they want to drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like they want to drink in a meeting that they would verbalize that. And they were told that that was an outside issue or they were muted, mm. literally silenced. And I just, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And mm -hmm. so TLC has been the first place where I've been able to bring my whole self and the BIPOC meetings have been, you know, me and Tammy talk about it being our home group. Mm -hmm. We've been, we've been around for a while. We've been alcohol free for a while. Laura. Yes. Yeah. Tammy's and got like both, 25 years. Yeah. Know? Yeah. She's got a good decade on me. And we talk about how this feels like home for us. Mm -hmm. A virtual meeting feels like home for us because it's the only place where, where we don't have to pretend. I don't know if people are aware of this, but like, yeah, part of, part of being a person of color in this country is, is, you know, being bilingual and the ability to like navigate your life around whiteness. And then, you know, you take that, you take off that mask or you use, you, you feel like yourself behind closed doors and never in front of, whiteness and it's mm -hmm. like this was the first time anyone ever said you know what we're going to create this room for you and we're going to close the door 
-hmm. and you can just be here in this room. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I was ever gifted that in recovery. And and it's, it's been such a remarkable thing. Well, you've, uh, and you've participated in that, that gift, like that gift happened because of you too. You know, we worked together on that. It wasn't Mm -hmm. this benevolent thing that you were, that you were given. Um, I just want to make that clear, you know, like you, no, I appreciate that. And you give it to other people. Like Mm. you, you are the one leading those meetings too. You, you, you have been consistently, and maybe you want to talk about this. Um, you've been working in the recovery space now for a while and have created spaces for people Mm. and, And sometimes been the only black, oftentimes, as you said, been the only black person in a room hosting, you know, all kinds of spaces all over the country and being willing to do that. Like that's also, um, it's a huge gift on many levels. I just, I've seen you in action. (laughs) You're pretty damn good at it. I want to talk about, I want to talk about the evolution of Sands Bar and all that, but let's just, um, I want to make sure you know, we, we tie off this point. So what I wanted to, to get at is like how important it is to, um, be around connected to in relationship with people who share your experience. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not like whether it's through recovery from alcohol or whatever you're going through, like you couldn't be a father without knowing other fathers. Can you explain maybe how, like what that has done for you to be able to share that experience with in that space, like to get people who understand your experience exactly? How does that, how has that changed recovery for you if it has, or how has that, yeah, how has that changed things? Yeah, I think the first thing that's changed for me is that I don't have to do the whole bilingual thing. I don't have to like translate my emotions and experiences. To be palatable. Um, Right. So much of, and this is something I didn't even realize until we, until I had the space was that so much of the conversations and the, the way that we communicate in BIPOC meetings, facial expressions, like literally no words, no words. And it's just like the chat doesn't even like, doesn't even exist for us because the looks are just so, we say so much with our faces, Mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's this thing that we just, we hear each other in this subsonic way. Like we just are connected in that way. Um, there's a, there's a, a pace to the meeting that that's different. Um, but yeah, it's just to have this identification piece. And of course it's not the exact, not, not the exact experience because there's intersectionality at play, right? Of course. Like I may, I am a black man in that meeting, but I'm also one of a handful of men that that go to our BIPOC meeting. Mm-hmm. Most people identify as women. Mm-hmm. Um, they're queer folks in our meeting. Like there's mm-hmm. so many different um, intersection points that I that I think that it's not the exact experience that we all share, but it's the it's the one. It's the huge. It's 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 the elephant in the room to not have um, you know whiteness as like the center of your universe. Like mm-hmm. in that space, we're, we're our own things. And we, you know, we share our own experiences and most importantly, we're not censoring ourselves. And again, you know, we're re- remaining respectful. And that's one thing that I've always been like, no, we're going to re- be respectful of everyone. Um, but, but there's just, that's never something you have to really do in that space. That's the thing. Yeah. It, re- it occurs to me that it's like, you're not, your your participation is not a response to 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 an entity that's there you don't have to shape shift and and you can just flow you don't mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's like if you're a fucking kid and your parents are in the room you can't have a conversation with your friends you know like you you can't you can sort of speak in code and like talk around issues and do all these other things but you can't get at the thing you need to get at Right. Bingo, 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 bingo. That's exactly it. And it's like you can still have the conversation with your parents in the room. You can even communicate effectively with your parents in the room. 
but you can't talk about how your parents impact you when they're in the room. You can't talk about how you don't feel safe around your parents sometimes when they're in the room. And you need you to talk, talk about that. Right. <laughs> right. And, and sometimes you just need to not talk about your parents. Like that, like sometimes it's just oh great. Oh my to God, like, right? Yeah. You know, like it's not, it's great to decenter whiteness and to, to be able to just be ourselves. I mean, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know how people are going to hear this, okay. but I also am responsible for my community and for myself. And I know that um, if, if you're hearing this and you're a person of color, just know like there is a world that you can be yourself in and who you are and all of who you are is, is loved and accepted. And I, I just think that that is just a, a huge gift that the luckiest club has, has given me. Um, I am part of the luckiest club, but I also just know that that is a, a very special thing. Thank you for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, opportunities to submit questions for AMAs, and invites to join me for members-only events. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want, but it also means we're 100% reliant on you for support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member. You can do this for as little as $5 a month. I cannot stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Tell Me Something True.